Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavier Baker-Whitelaw and here's my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So thanks to Patreon subscriber Megan, uh, this week we are discussing the original 1954 Godzilla movie, uh, which is directed by Ishiro Honda. So this classic monster movie spawned a massive franchise in Japan and overseas, although this particular film has a more serious tone than its blockbuster legacy suggests. Telling a simple story about a giant monster rising out of the ocean to attack Japan, Godzilla is a clear allegory for the atomic bomb. Indeed. I had never seen this before, and I would like to thank Megan for suggesting that we watch it, because I loved it. I had such a good time watching it. I don't really know how I hadn't seen it before, because uh, as some listeners will know, I have a long extracurricular interest in the atomic bomb and uh, cultural paraphernalia. We both have a lot of interest in morbid disasters and military history here also of all the films we have ever done probably this is one of the most accessible because you can just go on to the free internet archive at archive.org and watch it it's right there yes it is also available via the criterion channel if people have that which some of you may and the transfer is very good there so uh this is you could find this many places yeah i obviously am familiar with godzilla as anyone with two eyes and access to the internet is in 2019, um, one of the most iconic and familiar characters in culture. But as I said, I hadn't seen this movie or any of the Godzilla movies. The closest I could come was Pacific Rim. So it was also kind of remarkable I hadn't seen this because I love that movie so much. And that's obviously a direct riff on these movies in general, but this film in particular, like there are several things from this. And I'd say kind of the majority of Godzilla and kaiju movies, which is just, you know, giant monster movies, don't have as much of the kind of political and ecological content. And Pacific Rim is one of the ones that actually is kind of using kind of this idea of like the apocalyptic politics, but in a kind of contemporary way. The original Godzilla is like far more explicitly political and very kind of sincere and moving than a lot of them, because obviously after this came out, they kind of still have the whole atomic age horror thing going on, but a lot of them are basically, they're just B-movies, they're monster movies. Um, and I've watched quite a few because my mum loves Godzilla films and just has like box sets of these ones where it's just some guy in a rubber costume, like laser zapping some other guy in a rubber costume. And they're they're silly and fun, but like this one is is bleak. It is simultaneously very watchable, but also it's bleak. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I found myself thinking, I don't want to talk too much about Pacific Rim because this is not a Pacific Rim podcast, but I found myself thinking that, like, I don't think Pacific Rim is particularly deep on a thematic level. And so watching this, which I knew was about the bomb, like, that's also a pretty commonly known thing about this film, thinking like, wow, this is so much more complicated and political than that movie, particularly because the ultimate solution in Pacific Rim is to use the nuclear yeah, <laughs> yeah. I Which, mean, Pacific know, Rim is more about climate change. Yes. But yeah. <laughs> but in a sort of vague way. Whereas the really remarkable thing about this movie, and so remarkable in fact that it was com- almost completely edited out, although not totally, of the uh, American and European cut a couple of years after this Japanese version was released, is um, how totally clearly it engages with the question of atomic weaponry. Like, they have a scene where people are actually arguing about that in a very, very clear way. And 
as someone who is fairly familiar with sort of American cultural product around that topic from around this time, it was really, really surreal to see that. And there's an obvious reason for why it's different in these two countries. You know, I don't need to explain why that is. But it was just strange to see see the difference because, you know, iconography and discussion around the bomb in America in the 50s in public, obviously, you know, you had sort of left wing people on the fringes who were very anti-bomb and were talking about it in a different way. But in pop culture and in the news, this was not the kind of thing that happened. Like it was, the bomb was projected as this great thing. There's a great movie documentary film that just uses footage from, from various periods called the atomic cafe that I would highly recommend to people that has all of this footage from that period of like, like cartoons for children and stuff about how great the atom bomb is. In addition to some stuff about, you know, like what you should do if you get bombed, but it's mostly like, this is great. And then you'll have the occasional scientists on television trying to be like, actually not so much. And they're like, clearly this person's crazy. So you have this like big propaganda campaign in the U S at this period about, why this is actually a good thing. And the U.S. is testing hydrogen bombs at this point, which is a key factor in this movie. And yeah. I in mean, Japan... I kept thinking about, like, after, when you see this movie, if you have just any familiarity with American pop culture from 1950 to today, obviously, in the real world, there was a lot of anxiety about the bomb and, like, Cold War paranoia and people kind of freaking out because they've been taught to duck and cover as kids and stuff. But... In terms of the pop culture output, while you do get monster movies in America that are sort of, you know, they're about atomic bomb mutants and that sort of thing, the lasting pop culture impact is stuff like Spider-Man with his radioactive spider and like Fantastic Four and X-Men, like the X-Men are the children of the atom, right? And kind of there's parts of the like X-Men backstory that are sort of, it's implied that the genetic mutations, which are this like super cool thing, are something that happened after we started irradiating everything. And it's not just that like these Japanese movies have a much more negative outlook. It's that Godzilla is simultaneously a movie that is full of grief. Like there are just loads and loads of scenes of public grief in a kind of disaster movie context that usually isn't shown in Hollywood disaster movies. You know, they don't have extensive realistic scenes of people being really upset because that's not fun. But also it kind of goes into the logistical aspects of how people handle this kind of disaster. And that's something you do see in kind of other later Godzilla movies too, like kind of how they go into the nitty gritty of it. And I think it's like, as well as kind of the fact that Japan was like still in this state of shock after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there's also the fact that in Japan, people are kind of much more familiar with dealing with the aftermath of earthquakes which isn't like such a kind of universal concept for people who are watching English language movies. Because obviously it's like in parts of the US, yes. But most people, it's not like a daily kind of concern. (laughs) Um, But like in terms of the immediate backstory of this movie, it was like partly inspired by this American monster movie, which is called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which I've not seen, but it kind of came out a little bit over a year before Godzilla. And it's also about a monster that emerges Um, from the ocean this time in the kind of the north or south pole due to weapons testing but it's not a particularly politically complex film it's just a monster movie 
Um, but this one came out very soon after a nuclear disaster, which is not really that well known outside of Japan, but um, it's the Daigo Fukuyura Maru incident, which was a shipping, uh, fishing boat, which was irradiated due to an American um, hydrogen bomb test. And this was obviously massive news in Japan and it became this huge scandal because America was like determined to not acknowledge the fact that they'd been testing an H-bomb. So there was this really long period where there were clearly the people who were working on this fishing boat were suffering suffering from radiation sickness. And it took a really long time for America to even admit that was what was happening. And then they had to admit that actually the bomb was much more powerful than they originally thought. And there was this really large area of kind of irradiated ocean And then America stopped allowing tuna imports from Japan for a period. So there was like economic backlash and that sort of thing. And then this film kind of came out really soon afterwards. And it starts off with various like fishing boats and shipping boats getting destroyed in the ocean and kind of the Japanese emergency services responding to that. And that's how they kind of find out about Godzilla at first. Yeah, so Godzilla is basically like knocked loose from his prehistoric cave underground because of these hydrogen tests and when he comes out they can tell that he is sort of possessing a great deal of radiation because like the footprints that he leaves are have radiation and he has atomic breath yes so when he's later in the movie sort of destroying cities etc you have these scenes where large numbers of people have been displaced because their homes have been destroyed and doctors etc are like radiation testing the people who have been displaced and there's one particular moment where like someone is testing a child and like looks up and sort of shakes his head because clearly this child has like radiation poisoning and it's very upsetting and all of this is quite interesting because you don't like the people look fine like they just look normal obviously they're not putting makeup on them to look like they've you know suffered from a nuclear bomb but the fact that they're showing these cities burning and or destroyed after the fact and showing all of these displaced people and literally showing the sort of radiation testing is obviously all a direct reference to the actual bombs in a way that is quite provocative. And um, even in the U.S. with the sort of censored version would have been provocative to an audience that was paying attention to that stuff i mean apparently the the kind of critical response in japan like obviously this movie was a huge hit but like in terms of the film critics um like a lot of them were not happy with the film and were sort of like this is tactless because it was so kind of on the nose but obviously kind of over the it really like audiences respond to it and also over the years kind of people began to recognize that this was like a watershed moment in japanese cinema yes i mean i can understand that some people would would think that at the time or would think that it was trivializing or whatnot. But I found it really compelling and quite moving because, as you mentioned at the top, despite being a monster film, it's really very serious. Like, it takes everything that's happening very, very seriously. And so it's not as though, sort of, it's not, it doesn't feel campy at all. So the fact that they are clearly referencing this like real life tragedy that occurred does it feel cheap to me in any way because the way that the movie is treating the story of the film 
is very sincere. And so then the fact that it's obviously all this allegory for this real thing felt sort of earned to me because the movie was taking the whole thing seriously. Yeah, it was it was just very impressive, I felt. I mean, the part that I remember the clearest, because like I saw this film a couple of years ago, but the part that really sticks in my mind is kind of towards the end. Basically, they kind of face a decision where they have to use a weapon that is analogous to the bomb to destroy Godzilla. It's like this thing that sucks oxygen out of water or whatever. The oxygen um, destroyer, yeah, which is like the this, one thing that's yeah. a bit stupid. <laughs> it's but it's like very kind of like silly know. weapon. Um, but like, obviously it's kind of there so they can have this, like Morgan said, this sort of philosophical wrestling with themselves moral decision whether to use this or not when it could be this like horrifying weapon. And like the deciding factor is there's this montage where they have this choir of schoolgirls singing this really somber choral song <laughs> and then there's this montage of people who are kind of suffering from the attacks and it's very somber and dark and like upsetting and all of these kids are just sort of standing there in uniforms and regimented lines and singing this prayer for peace and then the scientist sort of bursts into tears and is like I have to use it um, but I think he then dies in the process and they kind of destroy yes. the weapon and that's sort of how they resolve that. So that character is quite amusing on a, on a certain level and then also serious on another level. So he's clearly playing the sort of like, it's not quite a mad scientist role because he has um, serious ethical reasons for doing what he's doing. But like he has a, an eye patch over one eye and just like looks very intense all the time and is has this like sort of Frankenstein-ish laboratory in the basement. It was kind of funny to watch the like original Frankenstein and then this a week apart because they felt connected in a way. Um, both monster movies, both with these sort of mad scientist vibes. And he shows the woman who's in the middle of this love triangle in the movie, the weapon that he's been working on. And um, it is this oxygen destroyer, which like it sort of vaporizes the, these fish that he has in this tank. And he makes her promise to not tell anyone about it because he doesn't want anyone to know that it exists because it will be used as a weapon and he wants to come up with some way that it could be used not as a weapon. And then this sort of disaster happens and he realizes that he has to use it, but he really doesn't want to. And this is also interesting because... Obviously, that sort of mirrors the discussion that should have been happening around the atomic bomb and basically didn't. But more to the point, this was when the hydrogen bomb was being tested. And that's it's specifically the hydrogen bomb test that set off in the movie, the, the whole plot with Godzilla. And um, the sort of history of the H-bomb in America is interesting. So... The atom bomb was developed in Los Alamos in New Mexico. The military basically brought together all of these um, physicists to work together to develop this weapon. Not just Americans, there were a number of European scientists there too. And the general feeling at the time, as reported, was that they didn't really get the total ramifications of what they were doing. Like they were all yeah. scientists and were just like, okay. And then when they did the first atom bomb test, they were kind of like, oh, but we're still kind of so wrapped up in the work that when they eventually did bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that it was somewhat shocking. And some of them still were like, well, you know, it had to be done. 
But some of them, including Oppenheimer, who had been in charge of the whole operation, really began to feel like they had sort of opened Pandora's box and that this was a horrible thing that they had done and didn't want to go any further. There was a particular scientist called Edward Teller, who, if you read any books about this, was also just like a hilarious asshole, like just totally just like a comical asshole figure who didn't get along with Oppenheimer at all. And even before they had finished developing the atom bomb, had been obsessed with the hydrogen bomb, which, like, I don't, I'm not a, an expert on the science, but basically, like, the atom bomb is a fission bomb, and the hydrogen bomb sort of incorporates the atom bomb, but it's more of a fusion bomb. Fission being splitting the atom, and fusion being squishing them together. The H-bomb is much, much more powerful. Way, way, way more powerful. And so when he's initially suggesting this everyone is like you are a lunatic like what is you even what are you even talking about we're working on this other thing and you're talking about this huge impossible whatever like go away i think he actually leaves los alamos before the project is completed but once they drop the atom bombs in japan obviously the military wants something better and bigger and so he is saying after the war like we have to do the hydrogen bomb and Everybody basically agrees with him in the military, of course, and Oppenheimer is the one who says, like, no, we shouldn't do this. He eventually then gets gets kicked out of the government. He gets his clearance stripped. They say he's a communist. It's this whole sort of dramatic thing. Really kind of horrible. And Teller then goes on to develop the H-bomb along with other people, but he's kind of the person in charge. And they wind up doing these tests in the Pacific, which are... Absolutely enormous and horrifying and obviously like destroying the area around them. I mean, something that I feel like some people may not even have considered or been aware of is that I feel like most people have heard of Bikini Atoll and they're aware that Bikini Atoll was where all these nuclear tests were happening and it's where the hydrogen bomb test happened that kind of hit the fishing boat that this film was partly inspired by. But Bikini Atoll is not like an uninhabited area. There was an indigenous population there with their own culture and language and so forth who lived mainly on one of the islands and were then displaced for safety purposes and were kind of shifted around various islands in this archipelago, essentially by the US government. And then, you know, within like 10 years of the main missile tests, they were like told like, oh, it's okay, you can go back now, which is fucking completely insane. But yeah, of course, like it wasn't safe and people were kind of, getting genetic mutations and getting sick and cancer and so forth. So they were kind of moved out again. So just the fact of these weapons tests in the Pacific Ocean, in this atoll, like carefully designed to make sure that it's like not close to America itself, is like this microcosm of American military colonialism. And I really, I I think people kind of, you do kind of automatically just think it's going to be the sort of island equivalent of a desert test. You think it's going to be like, oh, they picked an island that's just like a strip of rock. And it's like, it fucking wasn't. It, people lived there. No, it was really, really horrible. And they obviously also weren't initially making this public. The reason why they were trying to cover up the fact that they were testing hydrogen bombs is because they didn't want Russia to know that they'd even developed one. So that was the reason why they were putting all these Japanese civilians at risk because they were just like, we don't, we don't want, because Russia, if they test the isotopes or whatever, they'll be able to figure out that we've got this bomb ready. And it's like, it's all a fucking nightmare. 
Well, also, they thought that the Soviets wouldn't have the atom bomb until the 50s because they were, like, backwards Russian peasant idiots. And then I believe they tested their first atom bomb in 1949, and everyone was like, what? What's happening? And then this all sort of kicks off. This and also the magic monsters. of, like, during that period, the kind of military advancement in the Soviet Union was um, partly because they, they cared less about safety. And if you really don't care about the safety of your scientists and uh, lab techs, then you can actually advance very fast because you can just replace yes. them. Right. So, um... Uh... Um, if people are interested in this, uh, the science writer Richard Rhodes wrote, I think there are four of them. I've only, I have not read them all, but these like huge books on the whole history of the arms race in the 20th century that are really, really incredible. But there's lots of writing about this subject. It's very interesting and terrible. We will soon be watching Chernobyl. Um, neither of us have got read yes. to that yet, but don't worry. We're aware. It looks great. I will be yeah. watching it. Me too. So this is obviously something that we're both very interested in and nukes have turned into this weird pop culture thing in general in american pop culture like currently i mean where the they'll just sort of be like the thing that's like the bad thing that will happen right like in the most recent mission impossible movie which i loved and thought was great the sort of like thing that tom cruise has to stop from happening is like there's a nuclear bomb and uh, he has to yeah. stop it and like also like the concept is always big explosion it's yes. never radiation sickness. Correct. And I think the only, like, sometimes it's like, oh, we're going to get laser beam powers, you know, occasionally. But I think the only kind of piece of mainstream American pop culture I've seen that's really about, like, kind of incorporates that is the TV series Jericho, which is like a post-nuclear apocalypse show, which is about, like, this town that happens to be between several different nuclear radiation zones when there's, like, the bombs go off or whatever. But... Even that obviously isn't full of people dying of radiation sickness because like no one fucking wants to watch that. And obviously, you know, when the Cold War was happening and the arms race was happening, people had a different sort of conceptual fear of the bomb. And now it's not like people's fear of being nuked has totally gone away. Like witness Trump. <laughs> I don't feel that it's as present, obviously. Like we were quite a long distance from uh, Hiroshima. But um, I find it quite aggravating the way that this has become this weird kind of just like almost MacGuffin in a lot of these movies. And so one of the things that I found so compelling about this film was the way that it treated, A, the actual effects of it so seriously, which we have already described with sort of the civilian population, but also had a genuine like scientific debate like obviously it's not they're not actually literally talking about nuclear weapons they're talking about the oxygen mm. whatever but that's clearly what they're talking about and even though it's ha happening in this monster movie it's a more considered discussion of what science is capable of and how these things should be used which isn't just applicable to nukes, but also to, for instance, drones and various other things that we are currently developing that you don't get very much in general in public life, frankly, but certainly not in pop culture. And I found that just like quite riveting. And the scientist winds up, I think, as you said already, winds up killing himself because he doesn't want anyone to have access to this technologies he takes out Godzilla but then winds up dying in the process and then of course the love triangle can can be resolved also so you know the romance lives on but um 
I just really was, I was quite riveted by it. And it felt very current to me, even though obviously in certain ways, it's very much of its time. We should do an episode on Akira at some point. Yeah. Which I've never seen. Oh, okay. Well, you'd like it. <laughs> it's, it's quite hard to not like Akira because it's good. <laughs> yes. And we mentioned the American edit before. Yes. But I read the Wikipedia page. And it was just comical. I was like, what? Yeah, there's like an Atlantic article we can link to in the show notes, but it's just like, it was just like the stereotype of every kind of American bastardization of like an overseas. And also it like reminded me a lot of just when we were discussing Snowpiercer a couple of we- a couple of weeks ago, where like Har- Harvey Weinstein was like, okay, you need to add like a- an English language voiceover and cut out some of the serious stuff. And it's like, that's what they fucking did with, with the 1956 American Godzilla which was the only Godzilla that was available in the US for like 40 years. Yeah, they only released the Japanese version in 2004. They like edited in a white American character that they filmed separately and sort of super glued into the different scenes with body doubles and stuff. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the protagonist of the movie becomes this white American journalist and he has voiceover and they like reorder a bunch of the scenes to sort of make that work which i mean in a way that's very impressive that they managed to do that and have the film still make any sense but um i found this remarkable but it's interesting to think about that because as i was watching it i was sort of like it is very strange that we are now having these like hollywood versions of this story yeah because I, I saw the Gareth Edwards one, which came out five years ago, which was like the really huge big budget one. And I wish I could kind of remember more about how it, like its political stuff, because my key memory of that film is that every single human character was so fucking shit. They were appalled. So it was like the special effects and kind of the way they did Godzilla was very impressive. And in fact, I will be seeing the sequel this week. So I'll have a review up probably by the time this episode's out. And that film looks like the the kind of effects look very impressive. The trailers have really got me. But it was weird because like, I feel like the 2014 Godzilla did kind of take some inspiration from re- recent stuff like the Fukushima nuclear disaster. But I don't remember that kind of coming through when I was watching it because really my main memory is how much I wanted the human protagonists to die. They had, <laughs> they had Elizabeth Olsen and Aaron Taylor Johnson who had very recently played a brother and sister in the Avengers movie. So I was already like, this is a weird couple. But it was like, it was like she was like a, she was like a nurse and he was a soldier. And it was this very like gender essentialist kind of like hetero, like married couple. Both sucked. And I, they were clearly only in the movie because like you had to have like some kind of all American protagonists. And it was like the only character I didn't want to die was like Ken Watanabe, who is, you know, some scientist who's like, watch out, Godzilla's bad. Well, the new movie has just like a comical level of acting talent. It's like Kyle Chandler and Sally Hawkins. And I don't like I, I saw the trailer. The kid, they got Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger Things is like the lead. I'm going to I need to look this up. But I like I saw the trailer in front of some other movie and I actually just started laughing because I was like, how the fuck did they get all of these people? Oh, Vera Farmiga is in this movie. 
let's see, Ken Watanabe is in it again, Z Zhang, uh, Bradley Whitford, Charles Dance, Thomas Middleditch, Aisha <laughs> Hines, David Strathairn, Anthony Ramos. I was like, what is happening? And yet it looks so boring. And so- when you when I watched the trailer in the big screen, I was like, I'm very impressed by all the parts where there are big monsters because they look very large. Um, <laughs> however, we'll see. I will have my review up later this week. Like, obviously, there have been many, many, many Japanese iterations of Godzilla you know, through the current day. It just felt very odd to me to have like, primarily white casts. I mean, the only interesting American Godzilla movie recently is Colossal with Anne Hathaway. Yes. Which uses the concept of a Godzilla movie as a framing device for a story about something completely different. It's like an indie drama. It's sort of about this, like fucked up millennial woman and having a relationship with a terrible man and she kind of realizes that when she goes to sleep her body is controlling this kaiju that's destroying various countries around the world it's a really good movie and hathaway as always is great in it um but obviously that is it's using the kind of science fiction elements to actually explore something that feels relevant to the setting and the actors rather than trying to sort of use this thing that's born out of Japanese nuclear grief and turn it into a Roland Emmerich disaster movie. Yeah, I saw that when it came out and it made like $5, but it was so great. So I really recommend that people check that out. And obviously Pacific Rim is, you know, very international and Rinko Kikuchi is great in it. So it has a, a wider approach than... Then this film appears too, meaning the new Godzilla movie, which, you know, fine, whatever. They're next doing a King Kong versus Godzilla movie, it appears, slated for next year, yes. which seems impossible. Which required but- the Tom Hiddleston backstory King Kong movie to try and legitimize the reason why King Kong is now the same size as Godzilla. Because historically, King Kong has just been a large gorilla, but now he has to be the size of the Empire State Building. So. <laughs> I've not seen that one, but who fucking knows? (laughs) I mean, this just really sums up the whole progression of of these films, Hollywood in general, etc. The escalation. Actually, speaking of the escalation, the special effects in this film. How do we not talk about this yet? Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. Amazing. It's not like this was the most advanced film of the 50s. It's just that it really works because it is just a man in a clunky Godzilla suit running around a miniature. And it just kind of spawned or popularized just dozens of these movies where it's just men in rubber suits hanging each other. But it really works because they filmed it in such a somber black and white tone that you're like, well, I'm ignoring the fact that it's a man in a rubber suit. (laughs) Well, yeah. So there's so many miniatures in this movie, even before... Godzilla shows up like there's there's like storms I mean inside the Godzilla like storms on this island that are clearly miniatures and then he starts stopping around and it's also miniatures and um I was totally delighted by this I found it so fun to watch I couldn't really forget about the fact that it was miniature but I really really enjoyed it it was satisfying in the sense that so much time and effort had clearly been put into everything and you could tell and I just found that pleasurable. I think there should be more miniatures because frankly like I liked that more than the stupid CGI and then the Godzilla suit also there's just something about it even though it is so obviously like a guy stomping around that 
I mean, this is, we don't need to go into the whole practical versus, you know, digital effects thing, but there is something really satisfying about it, even though it does look a bit silly and is obviously fake. Reading about what it was like to be in that suit for the actors. Oh my God. Oh no. (laughs) So the first version was like 200 pounds and the guy just like fell over. Yeah, just like collapse heat stroke could collapse <laughs> right and then even the like better version they basically could last like three minutes before passing out <laughs> and, and then the second actor who was older like couldn't do it and he's in like a few shots of the movie so it was just this like hellish hellish process and somehow that just seemed appropriate to the whole thing but I was like wow okay that's commitment I applaud you it took 71 days to do the special effects oh yeah that was one where he lost 20 pounds yeah <laughs> I, I love that the later films have essentially kept the same shape for Godzilla yes which is really charming to me because it, the, the original design of Godzilla is obviously massively influenced just by how you can fit a man into a Godzilla suit. So it's all very kind of (laughs) just based on the logistics of the rubber costume. So it's this upright, slow-moving, vaguely dinosaur-inspired monster with a small head and quite a thick, ungainly body. And this is basically the Godzilla we see in most movies. I feel like maybe the big 1998 Roland Emmerich one may have made it look cooler, but I don't really remember. But with the Gareth Edwards one that came out five years ago, I remember there being like memes on the internet about people being like, oh, Godzilla's thick. Like it's like the chunky Godzilla. Because that's what, when it's like a realistic version, it looks even more kind of wild because it, it, it it's not like a cool, cool, scary dinosaur. It is this, it's got like big hips and then just like a funny small head. But like, do, do you know Shin Godzilla, which came out a couple of years ago? No. Okay, so I, I actually watched this recently. Um, there have been, in recent years, there's been sort of like an uptick in like actually legit like big Godzilla movies in Japan. So this is made by Toho, like the original Godzilla producers. And um, it came out in 2016. And at the same time, there's been a trilogy of anime Godzillas, which were released on Netflix. You can watch them there. They're, they're futuristic like space Godzilla movies. And in my opinion, they are shit. Don't, don't watch them. Um... The animation's fantastic, but they're very boring to watch. However, Shin Godzilla is the live action movie that came out in 2016. And it is so weird because you would literally never see that this film would never come out in America. It's so peculiar to watch because it is very culturally relevant in the same way the original one was, but to now. And this movie is, I do not exaggerate, primarily meetings. It is mostly (laughs) meetings between government officials having very bureaucratic discussions about how to deal with the Godzilla threat. Um, And it's like very heavily inspired by kind of recent disasters. Like there was an earthquake and tsunami in 2011 and there was kind of the Fukushima disaster and that sort of thing. And it's kind of, I think, satirizing, but also basically just like depicting the way emergency services respond to these things. Not satirizing in the sense that it's like funny, but there is a just truly astounding amount of people sitting in boardrooms having dull conversations and then you'll get Godzilla tramping through the Tokyo or whatever. <laughs> so it's like, it was like, that's wild. <laughs> and that was like the big Godzilla movie of recent years in Japan. I mean, that's probably how people would react at this stage, right? Like, 
yeah. you have some, you know, planes shooting, and then people would be like, what should we do? Let's have a committee <laughs> It's just like meeting. to have that be, like, the focus of the movie. It's, it, I, I didn't actually enjoy watching it, but I think that's just, like, my personal taste. I, like, some of my friends really liked it. Um, and it clearly like was very popular. Um, I think I preferred The Host, which is actually a Korean movie. It's by Bong Joon Ho, who directed Snowpiercer, and that is a disaster movie about like a weird monster that comes out of the river. And a lot of that is about how emergency how the emergency services respond. But it's kind of intentionally making fun of the incompetence of the government. Yeah, I need to watch that. Just won the Palm d'Or, Bong Joon Ho. Yes, very yes. exciting. We're very excited for Parasite. big David Bonghive. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Lots of other movies to watch. I'm I'm sort of curious about this now because I I was, you know, obviously aware of the genre but not super not aware of the specifics and having watched yeah. this, I feel like I'm curious about the other iterations because I did enjoy this so much. I mean, Shin Godzilla is just so entertaining. Yes. Like it's just as a concept that it's like <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Well, it's. In- I mean, we were- it was interesting. We were talking last week, right, about how Frankenstein is like one of our iconic sort of figures in Western culture, and obviously mm-hmm. this is an example in Japan of like a-, a figure who just recurs and recurs and recurs and recurs and can be reused in different ways. Um, whom we have kind of stolen and or borrowed in in certain cases, which is fine. But um, I always find that interesting when you have stuff like that that just gets repurposed. To sort of suit the national mood at the time, which obviously is the case <laughs> with that movie. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this this film is great. I highly recommend it. Obviously, as you can tell from the tenor of this podcast, and it is very readily available and only around an hour and a half long. Thank God, movies should be short. So if you haven't seen it, go check that out. Thanks so much again to Megan for sponsoring this episode. We had a great time. If you would like to force us to watch a movie of your choosing, you can do that on our Patreon. You can find more information about that on www.patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, Next week, we will be taking a sharp, sharp right turn from this film and discussing the new teen movie Booksmart, which I am seeing tomorrow. And I'm... I will be seeing at some point next week. Widely beloved by everyone. Yes. This is like rave reviews i'm pumped directed by olivia wilde yes it is a teen movie about two sort of nerdy teen girls who realize that they should maybe have some fun on the last day of high school i am really pumped for it it has done not great at the box office in its first weekend which is sad to me because the aladdin remake has made i or is predicted to make over a hundred million dollars which Makes me want to die. So please go see Booksmart. It's impressive how many actors are like just going on social media and be like, please watch Booksmart. Like Nicole Kidman, like Natalie Portman, Ryan Reynolds are like literally advertising someone else's movie being like, this is the best movie of the year and it's just getting crushed by trash at the box office. Yeah, I think it's projected to make around eight or nine million, which obviously isn't like nothing, but it's not very good for, I think it's a wide release. So... Please go see this movie. I say without having seen it, but then you can listen to our podcast and also, you know, support women. So that will be next week. We're excited to talk about it. Thanks again so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever 
other podcast service you use. It really helps new listeners find us. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work at The Daily Dot, including my uh, soon-to-be-published review of the new Godzilla movie. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. We are also on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.